Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to the Mentor Society. Today I am joined by Barbara Legere. Barbara is the author of Kevin's Choice, a mother's journey through her son's mental illness, addiction, and suicide. And um, her new book, Talk to Me, I'm Grieving, Supportive Ways to Help Someone Through Grief. She advocates for harm reduction, um, medically assisted treatment, and ending the stigma towards substance abuse and mental health issues. After losing her son, Kevin, to suicide, her passion has been reaching out to other grievers to offer support and understanding through her writing and as a volunteer for um, traumatic intervention program. So Barbara, thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, thank you for having me, Amanda. I really appreciate it. I'm, I've done some you know, research into your story and your son, and I know that this journey in some ways began when Kevin was 17. What was that? 2007, right? Yes. So many years ago. And he and his girlfriend came and said, Hey, I shot up heroin for the first time. Yes. And when that happened, like what, what did your mind, like what happened in your brain? Well, it's definitely a moment I will never forget because I was so shocked um, he, he had told me that he'd been using it for a few months. And my first thought is heroin. Is that even around anymore? I was so naive about it all. I didn't think you could even get it. I thought it was like an old time drug that was used back in the day. But, um, and then my second thought was, well, how did I not recognize it if he's been using it for a few months? And, um, and then my third thought is, oh my gosh, but what do we do now? So the not recognizing it part was he would hide it from me when he was first using it. And then you could you could look normal all day long if you were just maintaining it. When you initially get high, you're gonna nod out, you're gonna, you're gonna notice that someone's been using, but just walking around during the day, I didn't notice it in him. So that was uh, my initial concern. And as I said, I didn't, I was naive. I didn't know anything about it. And he said, well, I'm just going to stop using it. And I said, okay, that's good. Let's just stop using it. <laughs> I had no idea that that wasn't how it worked. So he didn't get into his first rehab until about six months later when he was arrested for the first time. And they gave him the opportunity to go to rehab rather than to stay in jail. And at that time, I was still naive because I believed that one time at rehab fixed you. You just did it and then you moved on. And other parents there were talking about their kids being there for the third or fourth time. And I'm thinking, wow. oh, that's not going to happen to Kevin. He's going to get it the first time, which I laugh now because I was so naive. That's when I realized the most important thing I could do was educate myself in every way possible, as reading, research, and also the biggest way I learned was talking to Kevin and his friends and asking them, why do you do this? What's going on? How does it make you feel? And I got to, I got quite an education and I felt like I really understood what was going on behind it. And like you say that, and I think, 
you know, when I was a teenager, I didn't talk to my parents about much of those sorts of things. I mean, I, I certainly like I wasn't using heroin, but I didn't let them know that I was getting high or, you know, drinking or anything like that. So then what do you think? You know, Neither allowed did Kevin, I. What, what Kevin allowed Kevin to open up to you? He and I were very close. I'm I'm a single mom and he was my only child. So we were just very close. He told me everything. I think it was partly his personality and partly because he knew that um, he knew that I would listen, that I would try and understand rather than just get mad or, um, you know, react in a negative way. I would really try to get it. And so I think he felt safe with me, but I was the same way. I didn't tell my parents anything. It was just, you know, you wanted to hide things, not tell them. So I was so grateful that he did feel safe talking to me. And then his friends kind of got to know me and they felt safe talking to me because I wasn't their parent. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't tell their parents, but they felt comfortable telling me what was going on. I think... For many of us parents, I think that that's important to remember is that being available and open to our children so they can come talk to us. Now, that does not mean that there won't be consequences oh, for things, but but to provide that safe place where it can be, you know, hey, mom, this happened and I need help. Exactly. Um, and it sounds like you provided that for Kevin I did my best I did my best I mean we tried everything that you can possibly think of and um obviously there's no happy ending to his story but I did go down every avenue I could think of to get him help and it just he always relapsed eventually and went back to the drugs so like you said that you always got him help. And so the first one, the first treatment was through the court system. Mm -hmm. so here's who paid for that. Um, the county paid for the first one. It was part of their program that they had, which was wonderful. Um, at the time, I had a good job and I had PPO insurance. So the next one we paid for through my insurance, but we still had to pay $11,000 out of pocket. So I had to get help with that through my mom. Um, it, it's not cheap. And back then, which was, you know, a little bit, I, I don't know how much it's changed, but back then, yeah, it was, it was not easy to get good help and be able to afford it. But on the other side of that, it doesn't have to be a high paying drug treatment center. He did very well at one that was um, very inexpensive. It wasn't nice. I mean, they had broken windows. It was kind of a dump, to be honest. But he did well there because of the people that were there and he related to them better. That might make sense because maybe some of those high end places I don't know if that's a thing. High, I think high end rehab is a thing. Um, but, but you might not be the same kind of person mm -hmm. that's there. Um, so yeah, when you feel a camaraderie, like almost with the people, it yeah. and it was more with the um, the counselors. I mean, Kevin could fit in with anybody. He just 
he got along with all different types of people. I mean, there were lawyers at the rehab and then there were people that came straight from the street. And that was just fine with him. It was more like he could relate to the counselors at, at this one place better than the place at the expensive place, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know why. It was just they were just lucky to get a really good guy. And so then how many times was he in inpatient rehab? 13 times that I can remember. I I made a list of them when I wrote the book and I came up with 13. I think it might be 14 because I thought of another one the other day. And most of those were 30 days. Some were 90. Um, and the longest one was 120 days. So in those, what, like 13 years or so from the time that you found out until he took his life, he spent over a year in treatment facilities trying, yeah, working. I mean, I imagine he worked his tail off because going through rehab is not easy if you're doing the work. No, it's not. It's it's not easy. And so what what do you think got in his way of staying sober? Well, I I believe that the whole entire reason he was using drugs was because he was self-medicating from depression and anxiety. I'm I had depression as a child and he did too. And I noticed it when he was in the third grade. Actually, his teacher pointed it out to me. She noticed it. I didn't really, I didn't really notice. I mean, I don't know. It was just one of those things that when she pointed it out, I was so shocked. And I realized she's right. He has changed. He's not himself. Mm-hmm. So um, all that to say, he did start taking medication. And then when he was in junior high, he stopped taking it and he seemed fine. And he did fine until he was about 15. And that's when he got introduced to um, drugs and alcohol in high school. And that kind of opened up his world to a different crowd of people. And he met some people. And, you know, you you can't blame the people. You can't say it's the, the friend's fault. No, because everybody is a friend. You become the friend that does drugs. So I don't like that when people try to blame other people for their child beginning to use. Now, and I I will say when I was working what feels like a million years ago now in an intensive outpatient program, you know, we always said you've got to change, you know, your people, the places and the behaviors. Not saying that those people caused the the use, right? But right those were the people that's what you did with them that's what's comfortable with absolutely. them absolutely you can't go back to them you just or, can't you know is my is is the person that was training me would often say you don't go to the whorehouse to hear the piano player <laughs> right that's a great um, one that's so great. you know it's a it's the those are the people that you used with and unless all of you are getting sober together the same yeah. patterns are going to emerge. And even if you're all getting sober together, it's likely that those same patterns might emerge. Yes. Oh yeah. I agree completely. And that was one of the problems for Kevin because he didn't have a lot of friends. He lost his 
childhood friends, pretty much. And everyone he knew was a drug user. That became his social circle, um, other than a few people he met in rehab. And his best friend became like my second son. And so they were that's who he started using with. And when they were together, they couldn't one couldn't be sober. They had that they just could not be together. And the only time they were together is either when I was with them or mm-hmm. when they were both using. So that's how that, that ended up. And he's no longer here either. He died mm-hmm. seven years ago, overdose. And it makes me just sad when I think about like just the sheer number of lives lost to opiates. Like that's, and you know, you and I kind of talked a little bit about this before the number of prescriptions being written for, you know, opiates, Oxycontin or hydrocodone, even like all of those is decreasing yet the number of users and overdoses is increasing. Yes. Um, So I, you know, I think I would argue that in some ways the medical profession overprescribed pain medication for a long time. Um, But if they're not doing that anymore, what are the, what do you think are the reasons that there's so much use an overdose in particular? Well, I think it's really sad um, because a lot of kids started out with pills back then thinking, okay, it's a pill. It's not heroin. And then they couldn't get the pills and they switched to heroin. Now there are no pills except the ones that are laced with fentanyl and kids that don't know or are willing to take that risk. It's kind of like playing Russian roulette. If you take a pill that hasn't been subscribed to you, I mean, prescribed to you, um, you have a chance of dying from that one pill. I think fentanyl has changed everything. You can't even Mm -hmm. get heroin around here anymore because it's cheaper to sell fentanyl. You get more high. The only downside is that you're risking your life more. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Kevin used fentanyl for at least a year before he passed away. So he knew how much to use, but so many people misjudge how, the well, amount or they don't know they're taking it. Well, and, and if it's a pill that's not coming from, you know, a lab where you know exactly the composition of that pill and fentanyl, right? It's, it's so, it's such a tiny amount yes. that goes from, you know, that can cause that overdose. Yes. Um, and so in a pill, an extra, you know, dust-sized particle. Granule. Yeah, a dust-sized particle, an extra one of those could cause you to die. Your friend could take one out of the same batch and they'd be okay. But- um, you know, recently here in Texas, in, in North Texas where I live, uh, there was a high school where I believe six kids overdosed from fentanyl at school in like a one week period. Oh my gosh. Um, and, you know, for me as a parent of a of kids who were in middle school and high school, I think like how easy it is for people to bring pills in and to take it in the middle 
of the day. Um, and that's, you know, there's not the, because growing up, and I'm, I'm sure it was similar for you, like when I think of heroin, I think of either shooting it up or smoking it, you know, it's not that taking a pill. That's not the way yeah. I think of it. Um, and so if it's just a pill, how easy is that to do anywhere? I mean, truly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and to hide it and, and, and that like, you know, throw it in your coin purse or your pocket. Throw it in your pocket. Yeah. You don't even have to hide um, it. No one would see it. And so with that, I'm curious with what are, what's your thought on making sure that everyone out there has Narcan available to them? Oh, absolutely. I carry it with me. Um, I've been carrying it for years. I think anyone who cares about this epidemic and all these young people that are dying should be carrying it because it can reverse, it can save lives. It does save lives. Um, I think if you you have a teenage child, they should have it. They should have it on them. And even if you know they aren't using, they may run across someone. They may be at a party. They may be in the bathroom at school. And if they have it in their backpack, they could save a life. Even if that it's the last thing from that they would ever do themselves, it could save someone's life. And that is so horrific to think that we're in that place in our society that we would yeah. have to carry that with us. It just blows my mind. I mean, truly, and I'm thinking like, especially after I just told you, right, that these kids overdosed at school. Yeah, like, does my freshman need to be carrying around a medication that will prevent a classmate from potentially dying? It's uh, insane. And so, you know, like I think about like that and that, you know, Narcan is a medication. And you said that, you know, you believe that Kevin was self-medicating. Um, and so like, this is not like, this is also a medical problem and often is a mental health piece as well. So what can our medical, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, what can, you know, the medical community do to help with, with these things, with this epidemic? Um, sorry, I just had to mute for a brief moment. Um, what can the medical community do? Wow. Um, you know, I don't really know. I don't know what the answer is. I know that diagnosing people and medicating people in the proper way will help people not have the symptoms that they go out looking for other drugs to cover. Right. So I think it's important to be aware of that, you know, and to seek help if there is an issue, instead of allowing a child, for example, to find their own solution to being depressed. They they hear about it and they want, oh, I, I'll take this pill and I'll feel better. So, well, then that brings me to the this, I guess, the stigma question about mental health, right? That we often don't, like we consider mental health and physical health often as two very, right, separate 
separate things. And if we're not addressing the mental health, right. And like, you know, with Kevin, he self-medicated. I know that before I was diagnosed with bipolar, I was self-medicating, thankfully not with heroin, but that was the case. So what changes if, if we make, you know, if we make mental health a real part of healthcare and not something separate? Oh, that, I think that's what needs to happen. I think that your doctor will look at the whole person. They won't just ask about your physical um, symptoms when you're having a, your yearly checkup. They will ask you, and, and they do ask you to see if you're depressed, but I think it would become normalized. It would, the stigma would be taken away. People would stop thinking, oh, you know, that guy's got anxiety and there's a stigma against it that make people not want to talk about it. And it's really a shame because it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's, I mean, yeah, would you be, just, do you need, do you need to go? Right. I know you're fine. You know, it is nothing to be ashamed of. And yet, like for me, when I was diagnosed with bipolar, I was embarrassed. And I have a master's in psychology and I judge, I had judgment around it for myself that like, this is a real, this is really bad. There's really something wrong with me. Instead of, you know, if I had cancer, I would never hide it. I would never pretend like it didn't exist. Um. And a mental illness is an illness. It's just not as easy to diagnose as like say cancer or diabetes, right? There's not a, what's the word exactly. I'm like, there's not just a test, right? It's not like you can do a biopsy. Be like, oh yeah, there's the bipolar or right, a blood test and oh, well your whatever, your bipolar markers are elevated exactly unlike your blood sugar or your cholesterol right there are right. other ways to test those things and then it becomes a you got to be honest with your doctor about what's going on exactly um but i think many of us aren't because there's that again fear of being stigmatized and I know that for me, once I told my, I went to an urgent care for something. I don't even remember what it was. And I was basically like told whatever that my headache was just, I remember it was from migraine. It was kind of a, oh, it's all in your head. Once they found out that I had bipolar, like they made it about that instead of I've had a headache for 36 hours. Like there's something there. And so then I don't want to, you know, it's like, I don't want to tell my doctors, like, except for my psychiatrist, because what if they don't treat the whole me? Wow. Um, and I got the, some of the same, you know, being overweight, like doctors automatically, right, go to, well, it's your weight. Um, and I saw something the other day, which was around weight, at least that was, what would you tell a patient if they were in a smaller body. Oh, wow. And so I think that could be, what would you tell a patient that doesn't have a mental illness? Exactly. Oh my gosh. And that I think so much that would change so much. And I think then 
two, I wonder how much it would change doctors' awareness of this is where I'm automatically going. Um, because we all have, we all make assumptions about what it means to have a mental illness, um, to use drugs or alcohol, not necessarily the way that they were intended. Um, and, you know, it's, but like alcohol is a totally socially acceptable drug. Yes, it's advertised every day on TV. You know, and it's like, oh, well, you know, I can't wait till I can get home and unwind with a glass of wine. Or, you know, is it five o'clock yet? Because it's time for my drink. And that's com- that seems completely acceptable in most circles. However, if somebody was like, oh, it's almost five o'clock. Let me get my, like, let me get ready to shoot up or take my pill or whatever. People would look at you like you were a crazy person. Yeah, they would. Um, and so, you know, we talk like substance use disorder is like the new, that's the standard, um, which again, like that can go to alcohol use disorder. Yeah, there's others in there as well. Why do you think that that substance use disorder versus addiction is an important difference now? Well, from my understanding, they started using that term um, to avoid the stigma of calling someone an addict because people have the stereotypical view that addicts are bad people. Addicts choose this lifestyle. Addicts commit crimes. Addicts are low lives. Um, And so they wanted to get away from using that word. But addiction, it is a, a physical addiction. When you use opiates, I mean, it changes your brain chemical. You get sick if you don't have it. Right. It is a physical addiction. So I think it's a really a stigma thing that the words have changed, but it doesn't really change the problem. And like when you talked about, you know, you're physically addicted to it, like you're, you get, and I shared with you that earlier that, that I take, um, I take medication for anxiety. It's, it's a benzo and. I have not gotten off of it because getting off of it, I had withdrawals that were difficult. And my doctor and I decided together in collaboration, right, that I would continue taking that medication. I think that's important that like, yes, I acknowledge that there's a physical addiction. And also my doctor is part of that decision-making process. Yeah. Um, But I think that that physical addiction is important in the criminal aspect. And by that, I mean, if you are in pain and the only way to get out of that pain is to steal something or commit some other crime, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And I hope that that changes. I I see it changing a little tiny bit, but, you know, my son went to prison for 16 months and it changed his entire life the most negative way possible. Four years later, I lost him. And what he did to go to prison was drug related. He was high and he did something illegal. And it had nothing to do with being a criminal. It had nothing to do with making a choice to do something 
you know, illegal. It was just something that happened when he was in a psychotic state. So yes, there are so many people in jail and prison that are there for a crime like, you know, stealing is the most popular one or drug dealing. And it's not helping them. It's most likely making it worse for them. So when they come out, they can't get a job because now they're a felon. And so what do they do? They go back to selling drugs or they go back to, you know, it's just a vicious cycle. Well, and I've, I still believe that oftentimes going to prison, you leave a better criminal than you went in. Exactly. And I believe that our criminal justice system is punitive and not reformative. Absolutely. And when you have someone like Kevin who has a mental illness and not just a mental illness of depression or anxiety, but then also the substance use disorder and you put them in prison and don't treat that. And you don't, we're not dealing with the root cause. No. And so no. if you're not dealing with the root cause, how are we ever going to have any lasting change? Exactly. And, is it go ahead no go ahead i was thinking like in is it is it spain or portugal where they decriminalized most drug use yes they, i believe they de decriminalized the use but not the dealing mm -hmm. um and that kind of puts the blame ish where it needs to be but like you mentioned many people sell drugs in order to have money for drugs Exactly. Um, but what difference do you think it would have made for Kevin if in those 16 months he had gotten treatment and medication, you know, true treatment for his substance use and his mental illness and maybe even additional skills? Because if he was 17 when he started using. Yeah, he only had one job in his 29 years. He only had one job during a sober period. But um I think it would make a huge difference because people have the, this misconception about prison. They see it on TV and they think that's what it's like. They don't offer training. I mean, it is so rare. I can't say they don't, but all of that is rare. You're basically sitting in a cell all day or in a, um, what do you call it? Uh, not a cell, but in general population where you do have more freedom, but they're not doing anything to help you. Kevin, while in there, was nervous, scared, anxious, depressed, all those things. And he wasn't getting treated for any of it, for his depression or his anxiety. So it got worse and worse. And he started using heroin in prison. And that's how he dealt with it. So he came out still using heroin on a daily basis. So even that 16 months in jail didn't give him 16 months of sobriety. No, the first three months he was in a cell alone. And he said that was the best time that he ever had for reading and learning and not using. And I was so hopeful he would write these wonderful letters about mom, I'm ready, I'm, I'm going to change. But as soon as they put him with all these other people that it, it's really gnarly in there. It's it's scary in there. I've I've had never been to prison, and I have been in jail, but not to jail. That you know, like I have 
right, right. for a job. I, I went um, and all I really remember was how loud it was Oh yeah, and how like it felt like, you know, there weren't windows. It just felt like everything was small and constricting. And if you've got anxiety, I would imagine that that is not a great like way to be to treat it. Very unhealthy. unhealthy. You know, I, I know I've looked at a lot of research that there's a disproportionate percentage of people with mental illness in prison, you know, versus not in prison. Like if we look at, you know, right, the average population versus the prison population. And yet we're not using that as a way to treat effectively, I think, mental illness. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get physical treatment in prison. I mean, you get it, but you have to wait a long time for it. And And they don't, they just don't treat your mental illness while you're there. And, you know, I know that until fairly recently, mental illness was treated differently in health insurance plans, you know, and it's, that is wild to me that like still, and also like, why like dental vision and mental health and physical health, like are all, or we're often treated completely different. And yet each of those, like if you don't get your teeth cleaned, you actually have a higher chance of stroke and heart attack and, you know, heart disease and infections. And if you, you know, eye health, I have a friend that just recently died from cancer of his eye that if he would have died much sooner, had he not gone to the eye doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. And then mental health impacts your physical health on so many levels, but yet we treat them all like they're, they're not connected. And what you're telling me too, is for, for Kevin, his mental health was 100% connected to his heroin use. Um, Now, I remember when I was reading, he came to you two years before he died and said that he wanted to die. Is that? Talk to me more about that. Well, he had actually attempted, um, I don't know how serious his first attempt was. He was 18 and he took a handful of pills, but then he told his girlfriend that he did it and he ran away and the police had to come and we found him. But he made several attempts over his lifetime before he actually succeeded. And he just felt so hopeless that he could not ever feel like a normal person that he could never get out of the despair. Um, He heard voices in his head sometimes And when he came to me, of course, I said, you know, no, you can't do this. I mean, he wanted me to agree to it. And eventually I said, he he bothered me for eight hours that day. And eventually I said, okay, Kevin, if you're going to do it, do it. And then I had to live with that for a while and thinking, oh my gosh, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He didn't mention it again for two entire years. 
And I thought, okay, I think he's over it. I think, you know, we got beyond that. But then one day he he actually did it. And I think that might also be important to note is that it sounds like for him, when he told you he wanted to, I wonder if it was more of a, I need to know that you are here for me. But then it got to that, like, I'm not going to tell anyone because I'm in so much pain and I'm so like unhappy and miserable that I, I don't want anyone to stop me. So I'm going to do it without talking about it. Yes, I think that's exactly what happened. And I think um, he also wanted to know, I mean, on one hand, he said, you'll be better off without me because he saw how much I was stressing out. I mean, I'd wake up every day and wonder if he was going to die from an overdose or suicide. Every day I'd wake up and think that. So he was worried about me. And then on the other hand, he wanted to make sure I would be able to handle it. And I told him, of course, I can't handle it. I'll be devastated. It'll ruin my whole life. But I think somewhere he knew that I would be able to handle it. Um, by handle it, I mean, I'm still alive. <laughs> I, I didn't take my own life, but it changed my life completely. I mean, I'm, I'm not even the same person I was back then. But yeah, yeah I did. Tr I did support him as much as I could in every way. And to know that he finally gave up was traumatic and uh, yeah I had to forgive myself for what I said that one time or I would never be able to get out of bed if I thought that I somehow contributed to his decision and let me tell you speaking from someone who did not have an addiction to a medication but who was suicidal when I was ready to take my life I truly, every ounce of my being felt like that was the best thing I could do for the people I loved and the whole world. Um, now that was incorrect. That wasn't real, but that was what I genuinely thought that that was what everyone needed for me. Um, exactly. That's and many people feel that way. And yet people call suicide selfish and cowardly and it's not it is not it's and especially when for me I thought it was the most selfless thing that I could do and you know the this I always remember the and I don't remember who said it you know suicide is a um a permanent solution to a temporary problem exactly well, for me, my my problem didn't feel temporary. Um, I imagine for Kevin after 12, 12 years of, 12 or 13 years, yeah. Of um of addict well, of dependency and trying to get sober and in and out of jail and treatment and all of that, that he had to feel pretty hopeless as well yeah. and helpless yeah he did and that very morning he said mom i'm never going to be able to stop using drugs i just know it and within 20 minutes he was gone those were some of his final words to me he did say i love you also but but you're right and thank you so much for saying that because it is so often an act of selflessness the 
everyone will be better without me is so common. And yet people put people down. They don't understand it. They don't see that aspect of it. And suicide is an, especially for younger people, you know, it's, it's the leading cause of death, you know, for, which is, it breaks my heart to think of the number of people that die from what I would consider preventable death, Mm -hmm. because if treatment, you know, was available, I think that those numbers would decrease. Um, not go away completely because there is treatment resistant depression and all of those, you know, things mm-hmm. out there. But I think that it would shift some of the the uh-huh. dialogue and the number of people that are are dying. And as a parent myself, I know that people or I at least feel judgment from people when my kid does something you know, that's not great. And I also feel like I get lots of credit when my kid does something that is great. So I'm curious what kind of feedback you got from the people around you or society in general as the mother of a heroin user. Oh yeah, there's definitely a lot of judgment. Um, You can see it in people's eyes when you're talking to them, if you bring it up. And I always bring it up because I believe we need to talk about it more. So it won't be a hidden shameful thing it's out there it's happening in so many families but anyhow yeah I did feel judged and I I agree with you parents get credit for the good and the bad and it's not necessarily anything we have done or not done um I still get that with the suicide he people look people uh, don't want to be around you anymore um especially in the beginning because you're so deeply in grief they just kind of go out of your life they look at you differently and it's almost like it's contagious yeah like Like i'm afraid i'm gonna catch whatever it is that that got you here and i think that that can be true whether it's the loss of a loved one to suicide or something else. Grief is uncomfortable for people. Oh yeah. That's one of the reasons that's the reason I wrote my second book. It's so uncomfortable. I remember when my dad died when I was 19 and we knew it was coming at cancer and it was expected. And you know, I got so many people said so many things to me like, oh, he's in a better place screw you. I don't care where he is. He's not with me and I'm angry. Um, or the, you know, God only gives you what you can handle. God needed him more than, than you, whatever, all of those things. I wanted to punch people. And then I remember sitting outside, um, my college dorm and just, I mean, I was devastated. And someone I barely knew sat down next to me and I went to a small school. People kind of knew, I didn't know this girl, but I knew her enough that she knew my dad was sick and clearly she had heard and she sat down next to me and she was like, that really sucks. And that was the end period. That sucks, period. And you know what? That was the best thing I heard because she was right. It sucked. Yep. 
that's exactly what my book is about. And all of those things that people say are in my book so that people read them and understand why that hurts, why I shouldn't say that, and what should I say instead. And it sucks is the perfect thing to say because it does. Acknowledging someone's pain and grief and they are going through the worst possible thing is what makes the person feel better. It's not trying to tap them on the head and say, oh, God needed another angel or he was old or you can have another child. <laughs> All those things. It's crazy no. what people say. And and the thing about grief, in my experience and curious yours as well and what you researched is grief is not like a linear, you know, you get better, 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 better every day. Because for me, I will go, I mean, my, he's been gone for 25 years now. Um, and I would go through, you know, I have months where I don't really think about it. And then bam, something happens or it's his birthday or the anniversary of his death or something. And I am overwhelmed to the point where I feel like I can hardly function. Oh yeah, absolutely. That happened to me yesterday. I, you know, was going along, everything was okay. And then yesterday I had one of those days I just wanted to stay in bed, but it's not linear. And um, the woman who wrote the book about the stages of grief, I can't think of her name right. Kubler-Ross, Kubler-Ross, that's right. And she even said at the end of her life that she regretted making it seem like these are the stages you go through. Because you can go through all of those stages in an hour or in a day and they will come back and they'll switch up. And, and I think it's like they're, they're stages, but it's not the order and it's not no. right. like these are the different ways that you feel when yeah. you are grieving. Yeah. That, yeah, that you can feel. And I don't, I didn't feel all of them. I didn't feel anger. I was not angry at Kevin. Um, I'm angry at the system. And I'm not blaming the system, but I'm angry that help wasn't easier for him to get. There wasn't enough. But yeah, grief is very uncomfortable and people don't like talking about it. They don't like talking about death, yet it happens to everyone eventually. We all die. I mean, that's just yeah. the reality. And, you know, I've said this and I will continue to say it. I worked in hospice before and... Whenever I had parents there, you know, I always talk about if you lose your spouse, you're a widow. If you lose your parents, you're an orphan. What do you call it if you lose your child? There's no word for it. There's no word for it. And studies show that that has been, is the most traumatic loss of all because it's not natural to you to lose your child, no matter how old they are. If they're six, 16, even 60. My grandmother grieved when my dad died and she was in her eighties. And yeah, you're not, you're just not supposed to lose your children. No, you're just not. No matter what the, the cause, the reason, um, whether it felt preventable or not, mm -hmm. it's just, it's not, it's I cannot imagine that level of pain, like having my own children. I can't imagine what, what it would be like. I don't want to imagine, like I don't ever want to have to feel that. Um, and 
I hate that you have had to, and I appreciate that you are using your experience to help others and to be loud and make changes um, in people's viewpoints and in the world in general. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for recognizing that. And there are so many moms like me out here that are trying to make a difference that are being loud and, you know, not everyone can go out and write a book or do this or that, but we support each other. It's like you belong to that club you never wanted to belong to. And we are there for each other. There's Facebook groups or support groups, but we just have a bond. No matter how you lose your child, when you're in that club, you're there for the other moms and dads too. But I think I know more about moms because I am a mom. <laughs> right. And I'm, and I don't, I'm a mom, so I wouldn't know either how dads, you know, feel, but I, it has to be difficult as well, just losing a child. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, I, dads suffer just as much as moms. That's another misconception that, that the mother is more hurt than the father. No. In my support groups, I see the dads. They are just as hurt as their wives. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, like, right no one gets the, the, I, I get to be the saddest. I get to grieve the most. I get, no, just, and everyone's grief journey is their own. Yes. And, and because you saw this person and they seem to get over that loss really quickly, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. You don't know if they're getting in bed every night and crying for three hours, right? We don't know. Yes, exactly. Um, you put on a happy face because no one will want to be around you if you act how you're feeling on the inside. And yes, because it's uncomfortable, just like mental health discussions mm -hmm. are uncomfortable and discussions around substance use are uncomfortable. And yet you're out here having all of those conversations so that more people will have those conversations. And the more conversations we have, the right the yeah. more progress that we can make on fixing it. I don't even know that there's a fix. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But there's so much that can be done and so little being done. Yes. And that's just so disappointing because it's such a huge issue in our society, in our country. And it's put down on the level of priorities. And if we think though about the cost of mental illness, substance use, suicide, it's huge, but, but we don't look at the big picture that way and, and cost not just in human life, but if you're grieving someone, are you as productive at work? If your mental illness hasn't been diagnosed, are you going to the doctor more and putting, you know, bigger strain on the medical system, right? There's all of those pieces oh, yeah. at play, yeah. um, which is why talking about it and being and making all of that apparent, I think is really important. So thank you for doing that work and being loud. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you for your podcast. I've been listening and it's excellent. And I hope a lot of people 
tune mm-hmm. in to hear more from you because I I just really appreciate you and all you're doing. Thanks. And I'm I cannot wait for for your book to to come out and talk about what not to say and what to say. Because again, anyone that's listening, don't say to someone, oh, they're where like they're in heaven or God needed them. It sucks. It sucks is a perfectly wonderful single sentence to say. Exactly. Um, or whatever works. It's terrible. I'm sorry. Whatever. It doesn't need to, you don't need to fix it because you can't. No, just and don't, it. and don't say that, uh, you said that, oh, don't worry. You could have another kid. No, 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 no. Don't say that. No. Or anything that starts with at least. I have a whole chapter on at least because anything that follows, you're just um, dismissing whatever it is, whatever they're feeling, you're dismissing it. Uh, Well, thank you again. I appreciate you joining me and being vulnerable and sharing so much about your story. And Kevin sounds like he was broken and also really amazing. Yeah, that's a good way to describe Kev. So thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate it so much. And if you want to learn more about Barbara, her son, Kevin, there's a ton of other resources as well as ways to buy her books are on her website, um, barbaralegier.com. I'm going to link that in the show notes as well as um, a few additional resources, including some places online that you can see rates of um overdoses and prescriptions being prescribed and all of those kinds of things because it's interesting. Um, And so with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening and learning more about how mental health and society meet. Now go out and open a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of The Mental Society in all the places you find your favorite podcast. And please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. You can find other resources and articles on our website, thementalsociety.com. And please remember that you are not alone in your struggles, that hope and help are all around you. Until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise. Bye.